had the uh, opportunity to attend the General Assembly of our church. And uh, it was interesting, a couple of things happened. Um, not unique, but um, some trends that we saw <coughs> that we hadn't seen in years past. And so, well, what am I talking about? There was usually the ratio of teaching elders to ruling elders at GA is about um, 75% teaching elders, 25% ruling elders, right? Ruling elders and ministers um, greatly you know, outnumber the number of ruling elders. And that was interesting. And, and that changed, and most predicted that if it did, we would see indeed an, a more accurate representation of what the actual PCA stands for. Um, and there's a number of reasons for this that we'll get into, but it was very telling, and that is exactly what happened. Uh, the ratio was closer to um, two-thirds teaching elders and one-third um, uh, teaching and one-third ruling elders, right? So it went up from about 25% to about 33% ruling elders. Does that make sense? The number went up, and we did indeed see a more accurate representation, I feel, of what the PCA stands for. Um, that's my optimistic outlook anyway. I think that's the case. And so, why do you think that is? Um, I'll put the question to you. Why is it that um, as we see more ruling elder involvement in the General Assembly, um, that that would indeed be a more accurate representation of the denomination as a whole? Why do you think that is? Could you first define again for me the difference between a ruling elder and a teaching elder? Yeah, so, and we'll talk about this, um, the first part of this class after we after this question. Um, so the PCA holds to what's called uh, a two-and-a-half office view, and I'll get into more of what that is briefly, but basically the teaching elders are the pastors, and the ruling elders are um, the elders of the church, like Dr. Mitchell and um, Dave Peachy. Um, and so that's the difference. Um, and so the question is, why is it that as we see more ruling elders, right, elders from the body, um, uh, at the General Assembly, as that ratio goes up, why does that give us a more accurate representation of what the denomination holds? Does that make sense? No, I'm wondering if in especially large churches, the ruling elders hear more concerns expressed from the congregation than they would take to the pastor. Say that again, in larger churches? You said? In larger churches. And maybe not just larger churches, but uh-huh. that I'm thinking... I mean, in this church, we would probably bring anything to any of you. But in a large church, sometimes the pastor is a little bit isolated, and maybe um, ruling elders are more accessible to hear the concerns of the congregation. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Anybody, want, anybody else want to give a, give a stab at what that might be, Mike? Yeah. I just say it's numerically. I mean, there are more ruling elders than there are teaching elders, and so. Yeah, that's a good point, right? Uh, for sure, there's not a, you know at least double, probably triple, or four times the number of ruling elders than there are pastors in our denomination. Go ahead. Was this was this you raising your hand? Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Go ahead. <laughs> Did it have to do with like how um, a lot of teaching elders are like are brought into the church, whereas like ruling elders were from the community and from the church, right? Like not. Uh, I think so. Yeah, that's a very good observation. Absolutely. He's saying the ruling elders are kind of organically grown from the 
teaching elders come from outside and are called and take a call from seminary, right? Others? Did you want to record this? I think uh, Dustin's got a bull set up. I moved it, that's all. Yeah. No, it's not. Uh, not unless you started it. I think his, you're, 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 you've got it if, if you missed the front of it. Um, well, we're going to look at some of the differences uh, between and similarities between the two, right? So we hold to the view that says there are three, well, there, there are two offices, elder and deacon. And within the order of elder, there are two um, kinds. Teaching, what is it? Two classes. Two classes, right? Teaching, elders, and ruling elders. That is ministers or pastors and elders. And we spoke about this, um, it's been at least a year now. And, um, you know, the, tr- the traditional classic three office view, which is minister, elder, deacon, um, it ends up being kind of just a distinction without a difference, right? Even if we have, uh, so they, they call it the two and a half office view. There, there were lots of discussion. Uh, in the 19th century and 17th century, particularly Southern Presbyterianism that um, talked about and debated uh, how we map this out. In our, what, are, what are the differences, right? Are all elders, is it flat? Is there really just elders and deacons? Or are there two different kinds of elders? And we're not going to get into a lot of that, but we do want to look at um, some of the differences and similarities. Uh, there were some questions and comments that came up a number of weeks ago, and Sunday school um, that showed a bit of confusion on this matter, so it's good to clarify for us exactly what those things are. Um, and by the way, our uh, you know all that we do, we take vows as as uh, officers to the BCO, right, to hold that this is a faithful um, expression of I'm sorry, expression of our ecclesiology, right? It's just called scripture. And then we have our Westminster standards that we say faithfully teach what the scriptures say. But the BCO is um, on, on matters regarding church government uh, is what we go to. And uh, we want to see what that says, right? That's what we have to, um, well, we, we submit to it because that's what we have said. is what, what we believe, right? Um, okay, so uh, the norm, like I, as I said, in the church was three office views, and there was this compromise between those arguments that were going on in the south with the north to a two-and-a-half office view, right? Again, it's kind of, um, it's kind of funny to me to say there's a two-and-a-half office view. That's what it means. There are two different orders in that office of elder. You, guys, you get that? Julie was teaching and learning elders. Um, and so... Um, Yeah, I'm trying to edit my, uh, I don't want to go on forever about this. Um, the, the zeitgeist of the culture and of the era that these things are discussed, right? that is the flavor of the day, the mood, the spirit of, uh, of the age, um, underlies some of the motivations as to why we would have these distinctions, um, or why some people would advocate one or another. Again, we spent a lot of time not long, not long ago discussing some of this, so I don't want to take a lot of time to do that now. Um, but for our purposes... Presbyterianism has always distinguished teaching elder and ruling elder, or pastor and elders, right? Uh, They've always made this distinction. Um, And the purpose for distinguishing those, teaching elder and ruling elder, was not to reject the idea that ministers are also elders, right? Some erroneously think that. It's not to reject that ministers are elders. They are. They're teaching elders. Uh, The purpose was to delineate the duties of those elders that were appointed for the purpose of representing and governing the body, right? I'll say that again. The purpose 
of distinguishing these two functions, these two orders in the office, was to delineate the duties of those elders that were appointed for the purpose of representing and governing the body. And Ethan, this goes to what your point is. Um, there's a greater representation of what the body as a whole looks like, the denomination, because these men most faithfully represent, they're representatives of the body, right? Their membership is in the church. Uh, the teaching elder, my, my membership is not in the church, it's in the presbytery, right? And so there's some, while there are similarities and there's overlap, like if you were to look at a Venn diagram, there's an overlap, but there's distinctions as well. Um, and so the folks of the ruling elder is governing, caring, disciplining, which they share along with the teaching elder, all right? Uh, they share that with the teaching elder. And so we'll see this laid out in the BCO in just a moment. And there were some handouts. Um, do you know where those went, Dave? I had on the back. I had them last week up here. But they're on the book table. On the table? Okay. Maybe we can get those passed out. We're going to look at, at what some of these are. There's handouts regarding um, what the BCO says about these that I'm going to comment on. And also, I printed out for you uh, from the stated clerk of the denomination, Roy Taylor, the actions from this General Assembly um, for you to look at. He, this is put out every year after the General Assembly as just a kind of a summary action sheet of what happened um, at the General Assembly. So we'll see that this um, laid out pretty clearly in the BCO. Right? There are two classes of elder, teaching elder and ruling elder. That's what the PCA uh, holds to. This is our ecclesiology, um, our doctrine of the church. Um, you know, there are those historical names that if you are interested in, I could give you about reading more in this issue, but uh, Withrow was the one man that wrote uh, along this debate. Uh, Thornwell, Dabney were some. Hodge, of course, uh, from the north, interacted with vigorously Thornwell in the, and Dabney in the, uh, the south. Uh, but Thornwell believed that the gift, he was again a Southern Presbyterian, believed that the gift of preaching was, in, was addition, additional to what was normative for all elders, right? So you have the duties and responsibilities of elder that ruling and teaching do, but there's added responsibilities of the teaching elder. There's added gifting and training um, and things that he does that the ruling elder does not do, as you know, namely preaching, ministering the sacraments, uh, pronouncing the benediction and the salutation, um, and so well, one of the things that, that shows this point that they are indeed different offices or different orders is that say for instance um, well I'll use myself as an example I was a ruling elder uh, for years in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and I was ordained as such but when I took a call to the ministry there was a different ordination right? so if they were the same there would not be a need to reordain me but I was being ordained to a different task, a different calling, a different vocation. Um, and so we see uh, on some of the poles of, the, of this uh, understanding, uh, denominations like the Brethren movements. Are you all familiar with the Brethren movements, right? And what are some of the, like Plymouth Brethren, I think, is one. Um, are there other distinctions or just the Brethren movement? Are you, you familiar with that? Anyway. Um, yeah, so these, these, these denominations flatten out the offices to the point of doing away with the office of teaching elder. Right? They, they so flatten them out, um, they do away with the ministry, the minister, um, and result, the result of that is undermining the ministry of the word. Right? Uh, we see on the other hand, uh, independents and congregationalists effectively 
eliminate the office of ruling elder, and they remove the body's representative function. Are any of you from uh, those kind of backgrounds? Uh, Congregationalists or uh, you are? Yeah. Um, And so the the, the PCA, uh, like the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and others, um, have advocated um, having both, right? It's not no representation of the body or um, all representation of the body and no um, office of minister. There's both. There's, you know, there's teaching elders and ruling elders trying to maintain those two things. Um, ruling elders are representatives in a different sense than teaching elders are. Ruling elders are to act on behalf of the people and are also to join with the minister, the teaching elder, but also be distinguished. Right? Does that make sense? I'm kind of belaboring the point, but I want you all to, to get that. It's not as if all that the, all the teaching elder does is parachute in and he's a hired gun to preach and he has, has no other involvement in the, in the church. That's not at all uh, what our, our uh, denomination holds to. Um, yeah, so the church, right, what's needed to keep these distinctions is that the church should be ruled by representatives of the people, not merely the pastors. Right? It's very important. And this, again, this is why we see at GA, when the ruling elders show up, there's a different sense of things. There's a different um, tend and trend and bent towards the decisions that are made. Um, and, you know, I can testify to this. Two years ago when I went, uh, it was more of a 75% to 25%. And it was, um, yeah, it was, you would get the sense just going to that, that GA that this is what the, the PCA stands for. You know, very pushing, pushing, leaning towards, you know, left and more liberal things. But this year when we went, that's not what we saw at all. You know, they corrected a lot of that, and there was a greater representation um, by the ruling elders. Uh, so pastors uh, should, be, should just be part of that group of one among many, right? Not having the ruling function by themselves over the elders. Um, we look at verses such as 1 Peter 5, 1 and 4 that show us that all ministers are elders, but not all elders are ministers, right? Uh, there's the distinction made there. All right, any questions up to that point? I know you're just kind of saying the same thing about four different times, yes. Uh, for me, it's, it, the distinction between, uh, say, the Brethren Independent Churches and the Presbyterian Churches on this matter of elders was simply a matter of training. You wanted to have your teaching elder to be trained educated. Whereas in independent churches, literally, anybody who could speak well and was liked by the congregation could become the pastor, the teacher, teaching elder. And uh, so, in the, like in the, what you handed out here, several... Can I have a copy of that, by the way? Or is there any other? Yeah, there's extra copies. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, seven two there. Yes. Um, the ordinary perpetual classes of office in the church are elders and deacons. That's what you've been saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the class of elder are two orders of teaching elders and ruling elders. Yes. The elders jointly have the government and spiritual oversight of the church, including teaching. Right. Only those elders who are specifically gifted, called, and trained.
trained by God to preach may serve as teaching elders. The office of deacon is not one of rule, but rather service both physical and spiritual means. Yes. Um, so that it, the distinction um, made between ruling and teaching is one of giftedness, called, and trained. And uh, in, in one sense, they, they do the same thing, but one guy, at least, is acknowledged as, you know, not just being a good fellow, but he has trained and is specifically gifted in uh, the teaching and uh, ministry of the Word. It's unusual uh, in this congregation that both of the ruling elders have had seminary training. Yeah, that's not the norm, for sure. Yeah. Right. And it's been a concern because all the way down through the history of the church, um, there's countless examples of somebody who had a charismatic personality and the gift of gab sway the emotions and the sentiments of people into all kinds of heresy and error. <laughs> and sure. to guard against that, right. uh, they wanted, uh, the Presbyterian churches specifically wanted their elders, <coughs> their teaching elders, um, to be trained uh, specifically uh, in the, the uh, study of the scriptures so they could read Greek and Hebrew, uh, they could uh, exegete the scriptures accurately and not just uh, be a charismatic person who could sure. uh, carry others along. Yeah, I, I think we're in agreement. I don't think we're saying anything no, different. No, right? I yeah. think we are either. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. And you know, there's Something that's quite distinct of Presbyterian Reformed churches is that they have always, uh, as Dave is saying, a place of uh, a supremely high value on the ministry of the word. Not because of the minister, but because of the word, right? This has always been very important. That's why it's so important that they're not only trained, but tested, examined by the president, and sent, right? Um, and, and not just willy-nilly, you know, because they seem to, to be a charismatic guy. And I think, uh, Hadley, you tell the story about after the uh, war, many who weren't educated but wanted to go to the ministry would go into um, the Wesleyan churches. Is that right, the story you tell? Yeah. Like they go to the Presbyter Pres Presbyterians and they said, well, you need to go to school and do all these things. And they go down the street to the other uh, non-Presbyterians. Well, after the Civil War, yeah. in the South, after they were defeated, uh, you had persons who had survived the war and felt called to the ministry, and they would go to the local Presbyterian church, which predom was predominant in the Confederate states at that point. Yes. And I feel called to preach. Well, first of all, you need to uh, finish grade school, high school, then go to college, then go to seminary. The guy's thinking, I'll be 98. Right. And uh, so he went down the road to a Methodist church. Hey, there's an empty pulpit just down the road. Right, right. And, and I felt the same way when I was, uh, I didn't go to seminary until I was 36. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, that makes the point. And, you know, Presbyterians are, are uh, criticized for that, right? President the phrase that the gears of Presbyterian grind slowly, right? Some of us have heard, and it's true, and sometimes it's painfully slow, but it's an attempt to be very careful, to be very careful. Well, the, the danger on the other side 
is that as has happened in secular education, a particular point of view can become dominant over and against the desires of the people who established that institution. Oh, sure. So, uh, you know, liberal... Oh, in, in the Christian world as well, in not the just secular. world, too. Yeah, so for in, sure. Uh, you know, essentially, that's what we say happened with the PCUSA. Yep. Is that... Uh, the academic class right. yep. found a way to dominate all the procedures of Senate and General Assemblies right. and take over the pulpits. Right. They're in control of the seminary, therefore they're in control of the pulpits, yeah. therefore they're in control of the denomination. And that's why you see 1929 in the North, the church pulled out, and in 1973 the same thing happened in the South. Um, that's exactly right. All I'm right. saying, there's dangers on both sides. It's not it's, Oh it's yeah. For sure, for sure. Uh, and so... And that's why the motto, Semper Reformanda, we always need to be reforming the church. According to scriptures, that's right, that's right. Always reformed according to the scriptures, that's right. Um, and, and within that is a presupposition that we've not perfected everything, right? I mean, it's acknowledgement. Even like with the Westminster Confession, the very first chapter, it says, uh, confessions and men err. <laughs> uh, and they always need to be checked by, by scripture including this document that we're writing, um, to be sure. And so, uh, let's see. All right, so there's there's same but different. There's same but different. And so we see, um, it's interesting, if you look at a history of the, the books of church order in the Presbyterian Church, you can see the timeline, the changes that are made line up directly, they correlate with things that are going on in the culture. What I mean by that is a great egalitarian push. Um, we see these uh, an attempt to diminish, right? So as Dave was saying, there's this era of elitism and clericalism, uh, you know, if not sacerdotalism in some sectors, of, of this, this priest class that is elite and higher than the rest of the people. Uh, that's, that's the danger you're talking about on the other end. That is, that is nothing that Presbyterians ever wanted, want to happen. Um, but we see as a result of that, this egalitarian tendency to therefore diminish it altogether, right? And in doing that, you diminish not just the clerics, but the word, right? And the ministry of the word. Um, that can happen. I'm speaking in broad strokes, of course. Uh, but Presbyterians have wanted um, similarly to maintain a sense of parity between ruling elders and teaching elders, right? There's a difference. There are added things that the teaching elder does, but they've always wanted to maintain a sense of parity. That means they are one among equals. The teaching elder gets one vote, and it's the same as every other elder in the room. They don't get an extra you know, block or an extra weight. There's parity among elders. Um, but they've also wanted to not go so, go so far to destroy the distinction between the two. Teaching and ruling elders equally have one vote in session and also in presbytery meetings and also in general assembly. Right? They don't have extra votes. Were you going to say something? No. Oh, okay. Um, this does not mean that the offices are identical, though. Right? They, they, there's parity, but they're not the same office. And as was hinted at, um, uh, Elder Peachy had mentioned, it is it's clear that this egalitarian idea uh, was promoted by the great revivals and their aftermath. Right? Just because somebody's um, charismatic and can sway people, they become what a guru. Right? Christianity should always be anti-guru. We shouldn't set up people 
and figures to follow. We follow Christ. Right? Christ is our guru, to use a crass term that's not Christian. Um, but it's not this guy or that guy or this pastor or that teacher. It's Jesus. But we see this in the, particularly the Second Great Awakening. Um, it's well documented that an anti-clericalism and an anti-intellectualism were the twin engines of egalitarianism that drove the, resurgent, the resurgence of an anti-Baptistic practice during that time. Uh, what do I mean by that? What is, what, is, uh, Anabap- what is Anabaptistic? What do I mean by that? Uh, does anybody know their history that we talked about? Yeah. An, I think it's an anti-Baptist. No, Anna. You know the Anabaptists, historically, who they were? Descendants from Quakers, right? Or the Amish and the Mennonites. Yeah. Okay. They were the precursors for, for oh, them. For sure. So you have this, you know, at the Reformation, the family tree breaks off, and it's what's referred to as the Radical Reformation. So you've got one, one wing that's uh, the Lutheran and the Anglican and the Reform, but on the other wing is this, they call the Radical Reformation, and those are the Anabaptists. What is that term? What does that mean? Um, you who know your prefixes and uh, language, what that means. Anybody have an idea? Ethan? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, what is the prefix? Yeah, what is the, what is the prefix Anna, A-N-A, mean? Again. And so, baptize again. Um, like analog, you know the term analog? That's like another word, right? Or word again, something that's analogous is something that's like that, right? And so the Anabaptists wanted to baptize again because the, the, the baptism wasn't valid, right, before. So you need to be baptized again under their system. Anyway, this, this, uh, this Anabaptistic practice drove uh, this egalitarianism during that time frame. Um, the Second Great Awakening. Uh, Great Awakening revivalist, a uh, man named Herman Husband. Yes, that was his name. Herman Husband was quite proud of his educational deficiencies, and they would. You can read their writings, and they boast about their lack of education. Um, polity and learning took a backseat to an experience of the spirit. Right? I think you were hinting towards that, Dave, as well. Um, another man, James Davenport, as well, disavowed his learning Uh, And as part of his repentance, burned his books and his clerical robe, asserting that the laity should assume ministerial authority, right? So this is the radical, you know, needle pegged towards that pole, right? They should burn those things. Uh, That's also, um, you know, there's this this mistaken era that, uh, you know, the Genevan robe that we see in um, many PCAs, but the CRCs and URCs, to be sure, it's not a... Again, it's an exalting of the word in that ministry and what's going on. Not of the man, it's to hide the man. And so we see these uh, things that are misunderstood and, and against those kind of things, as Mr. Husband and Mr. Davenport uh, would say, would hold to. Uh, 19th century revivalist, who's the most uh, destructive and famous one of all these? Charles Finney. Yes, uh, Charles Gradison Finney. He was, prior to his movement in that, was um, involvement in that, was a new school Presbyterian. Remember we talked about the history of Presbyterianism, there was an old school, new school, and then an old side and a new side. Well, he was a new school Presbyterian until he converted to Congregationalism. Um, This was in part due to the deep influence of the new ideas of democracy, right, democracy uh, in the church. And if you ever want to learn more about this, there's a, a, a fantastic book that is very um, 
very explanatory as to why American Christianity has developed the way it is. It's called the democratization of American Christianity. Um, and I think Nathan Hatch is the, the author. Very good book. It categories these developments. Anyway, um, Finney's new measures, right, his new measures focused on independence and individual decisions of seekers, right? Seekers, individualism, right? This, this diminishes the role of the church, the view of the church, the ideology of what the church is, um, and, and so on. So without proper ruling elders, the point is, there is no representation of the body, right? And I, I would be terrified to see if there were, if the number of ruling elders diminished more, you know, less and less and less at GA it would be awful, awful. It would not be your faithful representation of the denomination. Uh, without the proper representation, there is, uh, you know, the, without proper ruling elders, there is no representation of the body, only the laity and those who preach and administer the sacraments, right? So you have to have those three. There's just the, there's the you know, just the normal folks, and then there's the ruling elders that act as representation, and then there's the teaching elders. Does that make sense? Questions? Yes? Well, in my family history book, um, that relative that had turned, turned Anabaptist yes. reform, um, he was taken over by piety, you know? And I feel like um, his, he didn't think that his reform family was pious enough. Um, but we all should be concerned about, I mean, we aren't saved by works, but we're called to good works. And um, we should lose the focus on that. Yeah. Um, you know, they lost their son because of that. You know, yeah. it's like a thought, uh, family God. They must have failed him in some way that he would. Well, God is sovereign, right? And despite our mistakes, uh, our children turn out well or not. I mean, you know, God's going to. I'm just saying that, like. I know what you mean, though. Yeah, he looked at his good works as, but our works are nothing. You know, right. Like, he, I guess they just didn't know. Scripture well enough today. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, as support for the claim that egalitarianism, you know what I mean by that, right? Just everything is equal. Everyone's equal. There's no, you know, it's, it's kind of like um, the distinction with two men and women. We are ontologically in our being equal. But economically, the way that the functions that God has created us into, they're different roles, not the same. Um, even as the persons of the Trinity are you know, the, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, but the, the distinction in roles, the economic trinity, there's a distinction between what the persons of the trinity do. Does that make sense? Okay, so uh, support for the claim that egalitarianism has played a role in the drive by some towards um, this hard-to-office view, right? We can look at uh, the fact that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, for 37 years, the OPC, our sister denomination, um, form of government, right, that's part of the Book of Church or the form of government, uh, made reference to the office of the minister and the first in church, both in, for dignity and usefulness, because of the word, right? Uh, but in 1978, it deleted that phrase. Um, and this was an accommodation to the growing number of two office proponents, right? And we also see this in the PCA's Book of Church Order. Um, uh, and we see this where they the Book of Church Order, again, if you look at the development of it and the changes, there's kind of the shoehorning in and deletion of parts to try and make it fit um, a, a less uh, strict three-office view into this two-and-a-half-office view. Um, and against this trend, we must raise the concern 
as did Calvin on this matter, not that he's the be-all, end-all, but we see this historically, uh, that the end, in the end, it is the, the centrality of preaching that is at stake, right, when we do away with this. Um, and so in seeking to uphold the ministry of God's word, it is mistakenly inserted that, we, that what we're seeking is to uphold the privilege of persons. Again, they don't do with the persons. has to do with the office of what they're doing. Um, okay. First yes. Corinthians, you know, 12, you know, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. And that, that egalitarianism, as you call it, is, is we're, all the, we're all the foot, or we're all the that's heart, right. or we're all that's the right. That's right. You know, and, uh, yeah, that's well taken, point well taken, yeah. I think I need clarification. Okay. The trends in egalitarianism um, led from or are leading certain uh, denominations or uh, people to go from a two and a half office view to a two office view. Right, an attempt to and, do so. And the two office view would be um, how is that different? Uh, that there are only uh, uh, elders and deacons. There's no distinction of types of elder. Okay. Okay. Again, it's kind of confusing the two and a half office view. That's officially what people have called it, but again, it, it is a three office view. But it, it's, it's trying to say, to maintain that, that similarity, right, as well as distinction. So they call it two and a half office. Um, okay, so many have discussed this problem of low attendance by ruling elders at the General Assembly. Um, and again, it's pretty universally understood that heresy and decay, as we've seen again and again and again, as Dr. Mitchell's mentioned and Dr. Uh, uh, Elder Peachy have mentioned, um, takes place from the teaching elders, right? Takes place from the teaching elders when not checked by the ruling elders. That's the ruling elders' job is to protect you from me, to protect uh, the pulpit from heresy and to protect ministry and you know, any kind of goofiness that's going on. They're to protect the people from that. Right? That's their job. Um, okay, and so many of our have and are pursuing, um, are pushing things that need to be changed to promote and enable more and more regular attendance um, at General Assembly by ruling elders. There's a, uh, there are groups forming that are trying to um, raise funds and support um, men to go, right? It's, it's like unless you're independently wealthy and can take time off work whenever you want and I mean, it's hard for ruling elders to go to General Assembly, right? If you're a full-time man, you're raising a, f a family, you have a job, you have to take vacation, it's costly. And so uh, to remove some of these roadblocks, there are certain groups, um, and even Greenville Seminary, Greenville Presbyterian, what was it called? Yeah, Reform Seminary, um, Theological Seminary, have tried, or are doing things to try to raise money to support um, men, ruling elders to go, yeah. Uh, question, uh, what is the name of the, uh, It's a liberal, progressive group that met in secret. National Partnership? Yeah. Now they can't meet in secret. They were found out. They were outed. Yes. National Partnership. Right. Uh, so they would probably uh, just as soon not have ruling elders increase. Is that the trend, or have you heard statements to that effect? Uh, well, they would want to have them as long as they agree with them. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> no telling. Right. Yeah. But, but uh, have they actively tried to 
Um, I'm not sure. There are other things that they've done, and we talked about this before too, like um, having taken control of certain committees that have great power. Um, they, they, they meet together, conspire together to pick certain people as the moderator, because the moderator has power as well to nominate committees, to move the flow of things around. And if you've got somebody that's very biased, um, they can do that. You know, even they, they, they can push a minority view because of where they're at. You know. Yeah, we have an excellent example of this. 2016 politics in the sense that the people decided they did not want to have a professional politician in the office. They wanted to have a ruling elder, someone who was a businessman. Mm. When that businessman jumped into that politically elite class, that's what we've been experiencing. Um, yeah, I think there's there's some analogy so there. So if that sure. if that ruling class, no matter how well educated they are, become elite, they start to rule in a way in which they they get to choose the rules. Uh, well, yeah, I think that's a good point. We've seen this the destruction of the system. You know, in the last uh, two or three years, that's that's true. That's a very good point. Um, let's take a moment now to look at look at your handout in the, in the, the of the BCO starting chapter seven. And again, this is I don't want you to feel that this is just belaboring a non-important point. Again, there was some uh, evidently I mean, very clearly some confusion about this a number of um, weeks ago. And I, I want to make sure that we all understand. Right, we're going through classes. Um, uh, of men that potentially could become our elders. And so we need to understand what it is that elders, ruling elders do, right? What the distinction is and what the similarities are. So look at uh, chapter seven there. Um, I'm going to be commenting from this book. This actually isn't uh, just the BCO. This is a commentary on the Book of Church Order. And again, this is, uh, gives historical precedent and um, uh, case law, as it were, like we would look at in, in uh, legal terms. Um, it's very instructive uh, as to how things have been interpreted and what things mean that might be less than clear, although they're usually not. But um, look there at number two, seven two, as uh, Elder Peachy had mentioned a little bit ago. Um, again, and I want to focus on, well, I'll just read, the ordinary and perpetual classes of office in the church are elders and deacons. And within the class of elders are the two orders of teaching elder and ruling elder. Right? That's We opened up with, uh, Julie asked that, that question. Within that class, there are two orders. The elders jointly have the government and spiritual oversight of the church, including teaching. Um, okay, so I want to comment really quick um, on the commentary, what it says in this regard. It says, and this again speaks to what I've been talking about, the change um, it says, the PCA has omitted an introductory paragraph which read as follows. The whole polity of the church consists in doctrine, government, and distribution. Though this paragraph is not necessary, it does help to explain the organization of the officers and their work. Right? So what is it getting at there? It's, uh, those three things. Doctrine, government, distribution. Teaching elder, ruling elder, and deacon. Right? And then it goes on. By polity, here is meant the activity of the, ch activity of the church as uh, an organization. Um, 
And there's some other comments that are made that I won't read for sake of time. Uh, but at the end of that section, it says, Administering the sacraments, being a form of teaching, as distinguished from ruling, is reserved for the teaching elder only. Right? So that's, how, that's why that's the case, the form of teaching. Okay. Uh, similars, similarities and differences. Um, go on to chapter 8 there, page, second page in your handout. Uh, Tony, could yes. you read that again? The last sentence? Oh, yeah, because this says that uh, the ruling and teaching elders jointly uh, have oversight of the church, including teaching. And uh, yeah, that, that statement seemed to say, well, made a distinction. Well, it's, I think it's part of the oversight, right? The oversight of the church. They have, um, yeah, have the government and spiritual oversight of the church which includes teaching. Te- teaching is part of that oversight. Again, the ruling elders um, have oversight of the preacher, right? He doesn't, it's, it's not alone belonging to the, the pastor, though he's the minister of the word, and that is distinctly his call. The ruling elders um, gauge and guard, right, and check that, that teaching function. I think that's what that means. Does that make sense? Well, I, I, think, I think here Morton Smith is a very my reading of 7.2 because 7.2 says there are two orders of teaching elders and ruling elders uh, the elders jointly have the government and spiritual oversight of the church right. including teaching right and the word the, 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 the key thing though I think Hadley is the, the, the adjective jointly jointly and, and separately in the BCO refer to them as a session or individually or separately as you know and we'll see this going forward as uh, individuals, right? So individually, each man individually has um, the care and concern of the church, but jointly together, right? Those are two different things, and I think that's what that means. But I let's let's flesh some more of this out and see if that can uh, that makes sense. I think that's the key, though, is the is the, the phrase jointly. Um, let's see. Let's go to two. Yeah, and so, uh, again, he more thoroughly, thoroughly and fully um, explains what these things are in uh, Chapter 8, right? And so, you know, there's uh, the, the duty. Well, I won't get into all that for the sake of time. I did want to comment on number 3, um, Section 3 there. It, be, it belongs to the office of elder. Again, here it is, both severally and jointly, right, individually and then jointly together as a session, to watch diligently over the flock committed to his charge, that no corruption of doctrine or the morals enter therein. That they must exercise government and discipline and take oversight not only of the spiritual interests of the particular church, but also the church generally when called thereunto. Uh, they should visit the people at their homes, especially the sick. They should instruct the ignorant, comfort the mourner, nourish and guard the children of the church. They should set a worthwhile example to the flock entrusted to their care by their zeal to evangelize the unconverted and make disciples. All those duties which private Christians are bound to discharge by the law of love and are especially incumbent upon them by divine vocation and are to be discharged as official duties. They should pray with and for the people, being careful and diligent in seeking the fruit of preached word among the flock. Right, we've seen some of this um, Dr. Mitchell has laid out, looking at the, the end of Hebrews there, um, the great weight, right? There's, a spe- there, there's language of, of grave responsibilities that they have. 
And um, it's interesting, too, it, it speaks here, and we talked about this in class, of um, these things are not to be absent from just every ordinary Christian, right? They're supposed to be with them as well. But it is, it is a calling and a vocation, um, particularly for the elders to guard and watch and do these things. Okay, um, now let's look, to, look at number five. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to read here um, the commentary uh, on number three. Having described the office, it says, and listed the qualifications, we now enter into the duties of all elders. Notice that these duties of elders are both severally and jointly. That is, right, defines it here. Um, elders as individuals should be concerned about these matters, as well as when they are met in session with other elders, right, severally and jointly, okay? And then we go to five. One note here. Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you say something? Uh, number five here. Uh, when a man is called to labor as a teaching elder, it belongs to his order in addition to those functions he shares with all other elders to feed the flock by reading, expounding, and preaching the word of God and to administer the sacraments. Right? Again, notice the, the, the phrase there. Um, it belongs to his order, that is the teaching elder, in addition to those functions he shares with all other elders to do these things, right? So this presupposes and states explicitly, right, there's these functions that they share, they do these things together, right? Um, and then if we go down to section 8, uh, as there were in the church under the law, elders of the people for the government thereof, so in the gospel church, Christ has furnished others besides ministers of the word with gifts and commissions to govern when called thereunto who are called ruling elders. Right again, besides just the ministers, he's commissioned others as well to govern um, when called unto, called ruling elders. Um, and again, I'll quote from Morton. And Morton Smith, um, these are his own words. And then, like I said, there's also case law. He quotes a man named Ramsey, who was another uh, historian of the church. But he says here on 8.8, the concept of the governance of the church being committed not only to teaching elders, but also to ruling elders, right? Again, the concept of governance of the church being committed not only to teaching elders, but also to ruling elders is found in the Bible, both under the law and the gospel. Uh, though the word elder is not used in Exodus 18, both the teaching and ruling functions were assigned to those who were to assist Moses in judging the people. Uh, both classes of elders are referred to in 1 Timothy 5.17. Paul and Barnabas uh, appoint, appointed a plurality of elders over each church established on the first missionary journey, Acts 14.23. The elders and the apostles met in the Jerusalem Council to decide together theological matter, Acts 15. Um, of course, that's the first general assembly we have in the history of the church. Right? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, Acts, the Jerusalem Council are in Acts 15. Okay. Um, yes. 8.5? Uh, there's an important point. Uh, it talks about the distinction between the teaching and the ruling elder. Mm -hmm. uh, he, uh, when a man's called to a teaching elder, uh, skipping a couple lines, to administer the sacraments. Mm -hmm. And on Sundays, you know, I'll, I'll lay the elements out, and then for whatever reason, uh, you're not here, and uh, Dave or I preach. 
the elements are not distributed. Right. We need a teaching elder uh, in order uh, to administer uh, the sacraments. Right. Right, that's right. Yep, good point. Um, so the point there, and I think we'll only get a couple more minutes. Um, the point is that there are, these are things that this, all, the whole session does, and there are things added on to that that the minister does um, together. And this is to, to care for the people, to represent the people, the ruling elder, uh, in the courts, the, the, uh, you know, when there are matters adjudicated, right, session, Presbyterian GA, um, and to protect the people against the pastor, right, uh, what he's supposed to do. And so that's kind of the, one of the point I wanted to make. It's not as, a, like I said, a hired gun. Um, that just comes in and preaches and it has no interest in. It's part of who he is and it's calling his vocation. Right, go ahead, Mike. What I'm picking up here in, in this vocabulary is that, that, uh, it's sort of like genus and species, okay? Mm, yeah. there, there are two classes of officers, right. the elders and the deacons. There are two orders of elders, yes. teaching elder and ruling elder. Yep. And so it's important that we use these words, class and yeah, I think that's a very good analogy, yeah, or point, for sure. Okay, um, any other question on that? I thought that was important we understand, particularly as it relates to the General Assembly and kind of the things that are going on in the General Assembly. Um, uh, so Elder Mitchell and I had um, the opportunity to attend, um, again, the 47th General Assembly of the PCA in Dallas, um, and so here's a brief, you have a handout there um, of the actions that were taken um, at that assembly by the state of clerk, uh, Mr. Taylor, Dr. Taylor, rather. And for some statistical analysis, I'll, I'll, I'll leave this to you to read through at your own leisure, but it's some things I wanted to point out. Um, according to the, stat, the, the state of clerk's report, um, a snapshot of the PCA last year in comparison to the year prior, 2017, um, in 2018, uh, statistics compared with 2017, the number of churches increased um, by four up to 1,572. Right, these are statistics and uh, analyses that are done every year and reported. Uh, the number of mission churches increased um, by 11 up to 355. The number of ministers increased by 69, uh, and there are four 4,951 ministers in the PCA. Uh, Sunday school attendance increased by 679 to, right, again, Sunday school attendance um, moved up to 94,349, right? So that's a wonderful statistic, I think. I mean, we're, on the big scheme of things, compared to the mainline churches, we're small, right? Bigger than the OPC, bigger than the URC, but uh, to think that there are 94 plus thousand attendees of a Sunday school every Lord's Day is wonderful to think about, right? A place of sanctuary, a place where they don't have to be bombarded by the world, they can safely sit and receive, right? It's a glorious thought. Um, the total professions of faith uh, increased by 338, um, up to 10,071. Um, total membership, um, communicants, non-communicants and ministers, increased by 10,000, right? So the membership in the PCA, um, according to these statistics, is now 384,793. Uh, 384,793. Uh, the total giving increased by 33 million plus dollars, um, up to 870 plus thousand dollars. I'm sorry, million dollars. Right, the total giving of these, you know, these these 800, uh, 384,000 
members. Uh, the PCA has a total of 88 presbyteries. Uh, did you all know that, how many presbyteries there were in the PCA? It's a lot, 80, 88 presbyteries, over 1,500 churches, over 49,000 pastors, uh, 4,900 pastors, uh, total membership of roughly, again, 384,000, making us the largest conservative Presbyterian denomination in the country. Right? There's, there, the Presbyterian Church in Brazil um, puts us to shame in membership. I think in Africa there's a huge Presbyterian church there as well. Um, but as far as conservative Presbyterian denominations here in, in America, uh, in the U.S., uh, we're the largest. And while our growth rate has been low, uh, the fact that we are not declining is significant compared to many other denominations, right? We're growing, not declining. Um, major issues discussed at, uh, and decisions made at this year's assembly will have to wait until next week because we're, uh, we have to stop and get ready for service. But I encourage you to look over the actions taken um, at the general assembly. And if you have questions, come. I want to discuss some of these actions and overview, but also some particular things that happen in regards to hot topic issues such as the Nashville statement uh, that we uh, received as biblically uh, accurate, um, things like um, decisions and actions made as a, as a consequence, a result of this revoice controversy that we that sparked a lot of a lot of heat and fervor and concern, appropriately so, um, uh, a little over a year ago. Uh, so we'll talk about some of those things. Um, I'm tempted; I may read the Nashville statement. Um, it'll only take about six minutes to read the whole thing, so I might read that for you. We can talk about that, particularly. And if you want to do some homework, um, look, at chap look at Article 7 of the Nashville Statement. That's uh, the main thing that everyone was arguing. There was great debate on the floor about Article 7 of that statement. Um, but that will have to wait until next week. Um, any questions before we close? All right, bring those next week. Let's close and ask the Lord's blessing uh, upon our worship. Heavenly Father, we uh, give you praise and glory. Lord, it is, it is our delight to name your name. And to give you praise, Father, we pray that you would be with us now as we seek to do so, as we move into uh, that glorious foretaste uh, of, of, of heaven itself. Lord, we praise you that we can do so. We praise you that you have gifted and blessed us with this very reality. We can come together and be fed and receive uh, from you, Lord. And we pray that uh, we would be receptive to that feeding. Lord, we pray be with us now as we prepare our hearts to enter into worship, Lord. Uh, protect us, Lord, and guide us in all things. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.